Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. Welcome to HodgePod. We're starting a new episode here, and we're going to be talking movies. And my favorite movie of all time, Die Hard. And I have a special guest from our previous episode, Sean Donovan, who joined me for the Van Halen episode marathon we had towards the end of 2022. And Sean, welcome back. I am looking forward to talking Die Hard. I can't wait. yippee ki mother. I mean, hello, Rob. It's uh, <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I, I love Die Hard too, man. Definitely one of my favorite all-time movies. Has to be in my top five. It's one of those, if it's on TV and I'm flipping through the channels, I watch it from what part it's on till the end. Yeah, and uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say I've seen the movie 200 times at least. I mean, no lie. And I did a calculation the other day, uh, divided by 24 hours. I've dedicated 100 days of my life to Die Hard. So uh, either I need to get a life or I'm a big, big fan, but I don't care. It's my favorite all-time movie, and I'm really pumped up to talk about this movie today. So the movie came out in 1988. I can remember I just graduated from college and uh, the movie came out in the middle of the summer. What are some of your thoughts about Die Hard, Sean? When you think of Die Hard, what do you think of? Oh, I definitely, first of all, I do think it's a Christmas movie because it's all around Christmas time. (laughs) It was Christmas Eve, there's Christmas decorations, there's Christmas music. So I definitely watch it all the time around Christmas. I watch Die Hard and Christmas Vacation are the two that I absolutely have to watch in the Christmas season. But I also think that uh, Die Hard was a huge block blockbuster, one of those true, you know, movies that just has staying power. And uh, most people know about it. Most people have, have have seen it or have seen parts of it or have heard about it. And uh, just a just a, a great movie. Lots of action and um, uh, there's some comedy in it, some humor and. Uh, I enjoy it. And my favorite villain of all time, hands down, is Hans Gruber. Absolutely. Hans, 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 definitely. We're going to talk about Hans and Alan Rickman a little bit later, but I agree. The movie itself is tremendous. Uh, every scene flowed together. There was never a scene that was just didn't seem right in the movie. The scenes, again, flowed very nicely. Tremendous action. One part there where he's sliding down at the very beginning when they're shooting him. I That just like, every time I watch it, my stomach goes crazy. Uh, there were no lulls in the movie either, when you think about it. I mean, there's always a scene. There's a scene in a boiler room. There's a scene at the party. There's a scene in a duct. There's a scene in an elevator shaft. And the camera angles were off the off the charts as well. And it, like you said earlier, the comedy was mixed in during the tense scenes at the right time. Uh, that's what I really liked about the movie. And it's just, uh, we can get into whether it's, we'll get into it, whether it's a Christmas movie uh, later on in the episode. So we're going to do a two episode deal here. So we're going to talk Die Hard in this episode and next episode. So this one's going to be, I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. So that's the name of the episode here. The next one is <laughs> Yippie Kaye. I'm going to leave the last word off, but uh, definitely <laughs> looking forward to this. So, as I said earlier, I've dedicated 100 days of my life to watching Die Hard. So 1988, did some research, Sean. You know, I like to do research. So I went back to 1988 and some of the movies in 1988 that Die Hard competed with. And when you look at him, you go, oh, that movie came out in 88. So you remember that movie, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I do. I remember it, too. It was the number one movie in 1988. Coming to America was number two, made $128 million. Good Morning Vietnam with Robin Williams, $122 great movie. million. 
big with Tom Hanks, 144 million. Crocodile Dundee, Paul Hogan, 109 million. Three Men and a Baby got 90 million. That movie was with Tom Selleck, Ted Danson, and Steve Gutenberg. And Die Hard came in seven, 83 million dollars. This movie had a budget of about 20 to 25 million. And Bruce Willis got five million for that movie, Sean. And uh, that was a big deal back then. Yeah, I mean, today it would be astronomically higher, I'm sure. Let me ask you something. Every time you get into an elevator, do you always look up to see if you can get yourself out of there if you have to? <laughs> no, I don't, but I probably I do. should. <laughs> every every elevator I come in, and if we're in the elevator with any people, you know, I say, hey, if anything happens, don't worry, I've seen Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Die Hard, uh, you, you say the elevator, it was a uh, masterful performance, and We'll get into that as well in the later episodes. Moonstruck came in at number eight. Cocktails. Tom Cruise, two years after Top Gun, was at number nine. And Beetlejuice with Michael Keaton uh, was at number 10. So those are the movies in 1988. And uh, it went up against some pretty big movies. But this genre definitely changed uh, the action movie genre. And, you know, remember in the 80s, we had what? We had Schwarzenegger with Predator, Commando. Well, there was another movie off the uh, Terminator and there's always things blowing up and the scenes start out with things blowing up and any other movies you can think of in the eighties that were not like this type of genre I and mean, with the John McClane, but like, you know, shoot them up type movies. Oh yeah. Just any, any Stallone or Schwarzenegger movie really, you know? Um, but, uh, this one, like I said, the thing that makes this one different for me is just, uh, it infused everything into it, you know? I mean, there was suspense. I mean, violence is violence. I mean, I don't like to particularly see people getting blown to bits, but um, it, it comes in, in pieces. But uh, comedy for me is huge, even the slightest bit, just done at the right places like I thought it was in Die Hard um, uh, definitely works. So they definitely twisted it all in pretty well. And uh, the the story is good, you know? Uh, and it's it's a it's a fun movie. It's an entertaining movie. And when I go to the movies, I, I want to be entertained. I never look at a movie and go, "Oh, that would never happen." Go, well, no shit. Probably it probably wouldn't in most cases. But uh, I go there to be entertained, and Die Hard definitely did that for me. So, depending on who you ask, uh, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger turned down the movie, as did Richard Gere and Burt Reynolds. So, I think. They got it right when they got McLean. McLean was a New York City police detective heading out to California to see his estranged wife who was up and coming with uh, Nakatomi. And um, basically, she was out on the West Coast and he was fighting crime on the East Coast. He was going out to see his wife on Christmas Eve. He was flying out there. So, what do you think about when you see that opening scene there, you know, when he's going in the airport, Sean, like it wasn't like he had muscles and a t-shirt and he had a machine gun around him. This was somebody who was living like you or I did back in the day. And like we live now. All right. Yeah. I mean, he definitely, uh, you know, like I said, he wasn't wearing a, a muscle shirt with his you know veins <laughs> sticking out of his arms or anything like that. And uh, he looked like your neighbor next door basically, but he was a cop. But uh, this also works, by the way, when you do get somewhere after you've done some uh, air travel, take your shoes and socks off and walk around on the carpet and make fists with your toes. I've tried it and it uh, 
just uh, kind of gets your mind off things because you're concentrating on making fists with your toes. So I thought that was pretty funny. Yes, that was uh, that is a key part in the movie when you think about it. So That's the how- airport scene is probably the one where it kind of humanizes John McClane. Um, you see him walking with the big teddy bear, and he seems kind of like not out of place, but he's trying to find his way through the airport. And he comes across Argyle, who's the limo driver. And I thought this scene definitely set up perfect. John McClane, uh, he was definitely, uh, you know, New York tough. But when you go out to L.A., it's a little bit different. So he's in a different surrounding. But that opening scene, Sean, I think that opening scene really uh, played into the character of John McClane. Absolutely. Yeah. No, he's just, uh, Hey, everyone, we all got our issues and our, our problems and all that kind of stuff. And he's out there to see his, like you said, his estranged wife and hopefully try to patch things up and see his kids and everything else. And just happens to be the, the right guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. That's right. And I, I love that scene from at the beginning and, uh, Argyle is, was the perfect one. So I definitely think that that part of the movie, when, he gets to the airport and we see how he is. He's carrying the big teddy bear. So uh, why don't we give it a listen? Hey, I'm John McClain. Our guy. I'm your limo driver. Nice bear. Okay. Argyle, what do we do now? Was uh, hoping you could tell me. It's my first time driving a limo. Uh, it's okay. It's my first time riding in one. I love that scene, Sean. That scene definitely sets up McLean as just an ordinary guy, you know, not to shoot him up tight. So he's in Nakatomi Plaza after getting delivered there by Argyle. So the opening scene is pretty awesome, I think. Uh, you know, the lobby part, but uh, we get our first glimpse somewhat of the action that's about to uh, take place with that famous truck coming through as the Christmas party is going on. Oh, yeah, that big Ford from Pacific Courier coming in, turning its <laughs> headlights on just as it's starting to get dark, you know. Um, you know, it's funny going back to the limo ride for a second when he sits up front with Argyle instead of sitting in the back like the normal most passengers would. Right. I, I rented a limo for my parents' wedding anniversary years years back, and mm-hmm. my aunt and uncle went with my parents and a couple of their friends, and another aunt and uncle went. And one of my uncles sat up front with the driver because he wanted to see how it went from the front. So I'm sure it's not totally unheard of. but I love that. He, he's sitting up in the front with Argyle, so uh, I think it made him look like an equal to Argyle because they pretty much – person who's being delivered in the limousine is usually in the back so i think that definitely was uh was definitely a nice part in the movie so right John McClane yeah. gets, go ahead what's that i'm sorry he was yeah he wasn't trying to like you know be above the limo driver be above our guy he's just a regular guy regular regular guy he's a cop and he's just uh he doesn't consider himself anything special so he just wanted to sit up front exactly so the pacific courier truck pulls up and uh, we have our first glimpse. We have our first about the, about 20, 15, 20 minutes into the movie. We start seeing things uh, starting to change a little bit. You said the Pacific Courier truck pulls up. What do you think about uh, that truck when it's pulling up um, and it backs into backs into the loading dock? But the first part of that was when uh, 
Carl and Theo go to the lobby there. That was a guy in the lobby had no clue what was going on. Well, no, if you walk through the door and you're talking NBA basketball and you're talking (laughs) Lakers and you're in LA, of course, everything's going to seem hunky dory and seem normal until uh, somebody pulls out a silencer and puts a slug in your chest. That probably changes your day really fast. Oh yeah. Theo was not very nice when he, uh, when he kicked, (laughs) when he kicked them in the back there and, uh, he went to go do his uh, computer work, but Theo was a a a computer genius back in 1988. And uh, one thing I always found pretty funny, Sean, was the part uh, when he goes to the back. He he was looked like he was playing video games uh, when he's in that back room there when he's going getting all the computer codes. Uh, that part was pretty good, right? Yeah, well, obviously he knows what he's doing. It's like a breeze to him. It's it's just like you said, like it's a video game. He's just kind of mumbling tunes to himself as he's punching away on the keys, shutting down all the elevators and the escalators and closing the garage doors and locking the elevators from the 29th floor down so uh, nobody nobody can get out and escape. I love the the way he was doing the uh the <laughs> Yo, Rob, you seem to have a uh, an affliction for vandalism because I remember you laughed this hard when Van Halen was trashing hotel rooms. You found you seem to find that funny too. Damage. No, uh, I don't find it funny. Property, I just so. find a computer genius starts <laughs> kicking uh the computer genius starts kicking stuff and uh with the the grunts and the sound effects. So at That's that perfect. time the truck pulls up and uh the security guard is pretty much post um so the truck pulls up and this is when we get our first glimpse of our friends from the uh the terrorist organization and that truck scene when it backed up to uh the loading dock that was a great scene and um i love the way they walked out of that truck that was pretty cool yeah it was that was uh talk about stage presence i mean that's when you knew hans gruber was the man you know what i mean I mean, you didn't know who he was at the time. Like when, the, when you saw the truck door open and they started to walk out, as soon as you saw him, you knew he was uh, the the number one guy, the leader, you know? Yeah, he was uh, definitely the leader of the group. And I liked the part when they walked out of the truck and he he was the, the best dressed. So he's the CEO of this group of terrorists. And the way they transpired that scene through when he's walking back with the other guys and they're bringing the launchers and things like that. I thought that was pretty convincing there because you don't know, you know, obviously you don't know what's going on when you see the movie for the first time, but uh, it was pretty awesome. And he just looked calm, cool, and collective. So what do you think about when you think of Hans? Cause Hans is a, uh, in my opinion, I think you've said this too. He has to be the best villain of all time on, on, on the movie screen. Oh, no doubt. Um, it's funny too. I was looking at some stuff earlier today, knowing that we were going to discuss Die Hard, my, one of my favorite movies. And, uh, I was reading some stuff on, uh, I think it was on Wikipedia somewhere, uh, about Hans Gruber and saying that he, you know, 
one of the most iconic villains in cinematic history, they were calling it, you know. Um, I think it was uh, some magazine said something about him being like the 17th greatest movie character out of 100 at that time. Or maybe it was for that year. And uh, John McClane was like 12th, like placed ahead of him a little bit. Mm-hmm. But as far as villains go, flat out villains, it, it said uh, uh, Empire's list of the greatest movie villains of all time. Darth Vader, the Joker, Loki, and then Hans Gruber. <laughs> so that, uh, that's a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty evil cast to be part of, I would think, you know. But he did it, man. He did that so well. Like, know what I know what I always wondered if they ever did? I don't, maybe you could tell me if they did or not, because you're Dr. Rob, as I refer to as the research expert. But if we ever found out if um, if they ever did anything like like on stage, like live, like like Broadway kind of thing, like Die Hard, because I, I would have loved to have seen Alan Rickman live on stage. You know what I mean? That's the kind of presence that he had. Yeah, he had a massive presence. It was his first feature film he ever did. Alan Rickman uh, had worked in theater prior to uh, Die Hard, and he was he the way he the way he transpired that that character. He had the CEO look and demeanor. Always in charge, except for Carl, uh, who always wanted to get after McLean. So I think Carl was probably one of the ones, the character for Carl was pretty much one of those characters that kind of ruined the plan on a couple of occasions because um, Hans had to get Carl back in line. And then, of course, John McLean did. Um, and if John, Carl had not been so focused on getting McLean, maybe something would have transpired. But uh, it was definitely a a masterful performance. And I wrote down some uh, words to describe Hans Gruber um, after all these years, CEO, impeccably dressed, polite, deliberate when he wants to be educated in control, funny, sarcasm, informed, ruthless. So he would go from happy to ruthless in just like a split second. And he didn't care who he was messing with or talking to. He could change that demeanor. And um, I thought that was really appealing to the movie and if he had not been Hans Gruber I don't know if that movie would have been Die Hard would have been as successful as it is to this day um, without his performance I think McLean was awesome Bruce Willis was awesome but I think Hans Gruber made the movie what it is oh absolutely it's one of those things uh, I mean we all have our favorite movies I mean I, I got I got mine you got yours and there's a lot of people and if you have if you watch movies like with your friends uh loved ones or wife girlfriend whoever you've watched these movies with you know the lines so when you see the movie again you you can recite the line you can recite them just out of the blue you can be talking to someone at a party or something like that and they could bring up die out or any other movie and you could just for me anyway i can i can recall quotes like quicker than anybody and no i shouldn't say quicker than anybody but as quick as anybody i guess would be a better way to put it but um yeah he uh he, he definitely you know made was definitely a huge huge part of die hard and, and it would not have been as successful i don't think if uh if somebody else played him you know and like you said he you know the guy was impeccably dressed you know and his, his attitude highly intelligent you know remember benefits of a classical education <laughs> um you know what i mean and just like i love the accent and everything and it just he he was uh and his sarcastic tone and just, you know, it's it's not the police, you idiot. It's them. It's him, <laughs> you know. Well, Carl Hunt, 
that little shit down and find my detonators. Yep. Now, I, I mean, it's just awesome. I, freak, uh, I told you, I got a picture of him, black and white picture of him holding one of the radios in my UPS truck above like my visor because um, my truck was the Hanscom truck. So we used to call it the Hans car. So Hans, you <laughs> say Hans, 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 booby, you know? Oh so God. We're, we're gonna, uh, that, yeah. We're going to get to that part a little bit later. That, that Ellis was just, Ellis was, uh, he was just, he was a good character. All the characters were awesome, but uh, the characters in this, the, the, how they were cast, I thought were very well done. Reginald Bell Johnson, Sergeant Al Powell um, was a security guard in 1984 Ghostbusters. He was also in the TV sitcom Family Matters from 1989 to 98, and he made a couple of appearances in Die Hard 2 in 1990 while he was talking to John McClane. They were sending faxes back and forth to each other. Uh, right. Dwayne T. Robinson, Paul Gleason played Dwayne T. Robinson, and uh, he was in the 1985 movie The Breakfast Club, and he was monitoring the Saturday detention for all those misfits in The Breakfast Club. <laughs> Alan, Alan Rickman, I said Alan Gruber, you could, could call him Alan Gruber. Alan Rickman and was Hans. Alexander Goodenough was Carl. He was a ballet dancer in the Soviet Union prior to being in Die Hard. And, um, Casted him good. And then Clarence Gilliard Jr., who recently passed away. He was Theo, the computer expert. He was in he was in Top Gun. I forgot about that. In 1986 with uh, Tom Cruise. 1989-93 was Conrad McCasters in Matlock. 1993 to 2001, he was in Walker, Texas Ranger. And he was also cast in the final season of Chips, 1982 to 83. So... A lot of good actors in this movie all played important parts, but uh, that's a pretty good uh, list there. I think they nailed every one of those characters for this movie. Right. Yeah, uh, man. He also, uh, uh, is it Clarence Goulia Jr.? Is that who we were just talking about? Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, yeah in Top Gun, remember, he was the, the Rio that went up after Goose had died. And he was the oh, guy yeah. that sat in the back seat. And they had an easy shot. Maverick wouldn't take the shot. And he's like, hey, man, we could have had him. And then Matt, you know, remember Tom Cruise grabs him. He's like, I will fire what I have goddamn good and ready. That oh, was, yeah, uh, see? That, yeah, that was Gouillard. So, yeah, it's too bad. Passed away, uh, what was it? Uh, In December it late, sometime. Late November, December, early. Yeah, just a month ago or so. Well, you know, um, he, he was awesome as uh, as Theo in that movie. He was perfect. Um, I thought that was pl- that was a main character in the movie, obviously, but I think he played that part just right. Um, he added some he added some uh, levity and uh, humor to it as well. So uh, they enter the elevator. So you know what I really like about that scene when they're walking out of the elevator? Uh, it kind of slows things down a little bit, and then Hans walks out from the group of terrorists in the elevator, and just that look he had when he was just about before they were starting to take over that party there, that was, he was, he was very convincing in that movie. He could turn on a dime. Like I said earlier. Yes. Yeah. I was just reading to something that they, I guess he didn't at some point at the beginning, originally didn't want to do the die hard and didn't want to play Alan Rickman. And I mean, Alan Rickman didn't want to play Hans Gruber. Um, And, uh, he insisted, I think, that he was dressed the way he dressed, like in the in the the expensive business suit, 
you know, and and that ended up working out well, you know, like the the John Phillips from London, you know, I have two myself, um, ended up wearing that suit and dressing like that. And that helped him later when he almost, uh, when he ran into Bruce Willis, you know, when he was checking the explosives later in the movie and uh, Bruce Willis found him and said, Hey, what are you doing up here? And he pretended to be somebody else instead of Hans Gruber. He pretended to be Bill Clay, somebody that was at the party. Remember yeah. that? Yeah. So if he was wearing if he was wearing an ammo belt and had a gun slung around his shoulder, Bruce Willis would have known he was one of the bad guys and would have shot him. But because he was in a suit, he looked like he belonged at the party. Yep. And uh, good segue, Sean, because here's that part. Nice suit. John Phillips, London. I have two myself. Rumor has it, Arafat buys his death. <laughs> that is a great part right there. I love that part. Name dropping. He was name dropping, walking out of the elevator there. And you know what? I've seen, I think I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about getting ready for this. Out of all the times I watched it, that one part there where they play that harp or that violin, when he uh, when he named the suit to uh, Tagagi, I didn't yeah. even realize it. As soon as Tagagi turns to look at uh, Hans, they play that, and I thought that was perfect. The way that scene turned when he well, it was to meant to look at Gruber. I thought that yeah. was, and I can't believe I after all that I totally did not see that until like the two hundred and first time I've seen the movie. So I thought that was awesome the way they they did that. That was very well, very subtle. A dramatic well i thought for dramatic effect that sound is you know boom they play that music and it's like takagi's like how the hell does he know that i got my suit at john phillips in london you know what i mean like how the hell would he ever oh my god he he's seen me there you know but when he just smiled and said i've got two myself <laughs> and he, he was a name dropper too he was a name dropper he, he seemed to be an outlier according to watching the movie but um he was a name dropper, and uh, so I thought that was, uh, again, maybe a little humor at the time. So the movie uh, was budgeted at 25 to $35 million. Uh, it made 139 to $141 million. So uh, it definitely came out very profitable uh, for Fox. And uh, Bruce Willis, uh, you know, doing some reading on that, he um, – he he demanded five five million and uh, at at times maybe got some resistance from the uh, executives on the movie side. The uh, didn't feel that he was uh, strong enough because he was with moonlighting, but he proved everybody wrong on that respect. So so I thought that was really interesting. There back then they're still squabbling over money, but five million back in nineteen eighty eight that's like probably what thirty million right now in two thousand twenty three. Probably, <clears throat> I mean, yeah. But uh, they they admitted later, I think, too, that they the you know the movie makers that they needed Willis. I mean, it definitely worked out for them. You got you know what I mean. There's no doubt that it worked out for them. So he was definitely well worth the money. Oh yeah, definitely worth the money. And uh, um, I thought that was done very very astutely by the movie. Uh, studio fox to get him a distributor to uh have him cast in that uh john mcclain so we get to the part now where um i think you start to see 
uh, how serious this terrorist group is. And uh, Hans Gruber just let everybody know. So this is a catered party at Nakatomi Plaza on Christmas Eve. So basically, everybody's having a good time. And the terrorists are up there on the 30th floor. And this is when Hans lets everybody know who's in charge. And he tells everybody this is the way it's going to be. And so it's like he he crashed the party. I mean, you know, I'm watching the part right now silently. And uh, he is just like walking around because he wanted to find out who Takagi was and the Christmas trees behind there. And um, but basically uh, he crashed the party. So I thought that part there where uh, McLean is um, in that other conference room, very key scene. You kind of get the sense that he doesn't know what Hans looks like or he does, but um, he sees some action over there. Uh, I've seen some interpretations. He didn't know uh, what Hans looked like. And then you could also perceive maybe he did, but that scene right there where Takagi, um, you know, gets, gets wasted by uh, Gruber there. That's yeah. the first, first inkling right there that got out of the, um, he got out of there just in time and, you know, they thought it was clear, but um, Mr. Gruber starts uh Again, can be polite, but he can be ruthless. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, left-handed shot too. He 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 blew Mister Takagi away with a with a with a left-handed pistol shot. So that was that was pretty impressive. But um, uh, yeah, I just love the way you know. I love that whole speech right after getting out of the elevator when he's talking to him and he's like looking at the models that the Nakatomi Corporation <laughs> had created that had built. And oh, this is what this is beautiful. I always enjoyed building models when I was a boy, the preciseness to every conceivable detail, you know, and just, you know, and when he says to him, he goes, this is what our, is this is what this is all about, our project in Indonesia? <laughs> and he's like, Mr. Takagi, I could talk about industrialization and men's fashions all day, but I'm afraid work must intrude. And that's when they get down to business. And that's when they you find out that he's really, you know, these guys mean business and are fooling around. They're pretty ruthless. And, uh, if you don't give them what they want, they're going to, they're going to kill you, which they did, you know? So that little, uh, you know, Mr. Takagi, that's a really nice suit. It would be a shame to ruin it. You know, I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four, that kind of thing. So that, uh, that sets him as a pretty, uh, pretty serious, uh, ruthless guy. And then when he shoots him, it's like, holy smokes. Yeah. That's the first inkling right there that, uh, at that point in the movie that he is, uh, he's not playing games. And so we get to the, uh, part where, uh, he's at the party and, um, the terrorists get their first little pushback from John McClane and terrorists pretty much don't know what the heck's going on. And, uh, you know what part I'm talking about. And, uh, I think this is a great part in the movie and this is definitely, don't really see that much action until this part and then Tagagi getting killed. But, uh, the part where we see, uh, our friend in the elevator with the, uh, I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. I wanted this to be professional, efficient, adult, cooperative, not a lot to ask. Alas, your Mr. Takagi did not see it that way. So he won't be joining us for the rest of his life. We can go anywhere you want. You can walk out of here or be carried out. But have no illusions. We are in charge. So, decide now, each of you. 
And please remember, we have left nothing to chance. Security guard we missed. Usually tied up and just very fat on attention. This is something else. Pretty awesome part right there. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And that's when he first learns uh all the way he kind of takes Kyle's brother's head and just kind of flips it to the side to see if he's still alive, kind of you know, <laughs> just kind of that little disregard of kind of like almost like he was disappointed in him, you know what I mean? For getting killed, you know. Yeah, he kind of, he flung that head pretty uh yeah, he's kind of like, but kind of like, I don't care. You know, he flipped it over. And uh, yeah. you know what I liked about that part there where he's talking to the people, you know, he's he, he's in his suit there and he's eating the catered food, you know, the finger food. <laughs> and I love the way they pan and they're all looking at him like, <laughs> it's like I know, he's, he's, he's the CEO in charge now. He's uh, he's sitting down with a leg crossed and, you know, <laughs> one leg over the other with a plate of food eating, you know. <laughs> Oh man, that was uh that was a good part, you know. That camera angle there is pretty pretty interesting cuz he's up, he's elevated, so all the people at the party are down those in that little pavilion or that area of that floor there. So they're looking up, so he has the authority, everybody's looking up at him, he's in charge, so um it's kind of built in that way in the movie. So I thought that was uh it was kind of funny the way they did that. He's just eating the food and he crashed the party and why not? Right. You know, it's none of the guys from uh, his team were able to eat. It was just Mr. Uh, Mr. Gruber. Well, he's the top dog. He's the one calling the shots. So he, uh, he can, he, he can do as he, he can do as he pleases, come and go as he wants. I said, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So the movie is really awesome too, because it has a lot of, a lot of moving parts, a lot of, different areas of the building of Nakatomi Plaza. So uh, you have the rooftop, you have elevator shafts, air ducts, executive offices, staircases, the rooftop again, you know, where he's running up there at different times of the movie, the engineering boiler room. And I think that really what keeps the movie moving. It's just not set in one place. And what I find is very interesting is that you have different aspects of the movie, different characters, not meeting and not being in the same room, but they're kind of moving and flowing as the movie goes on. I thought that was pretty good because usually when you have conflict in movies, your combatants are pretty much in front of each other, but this does not happen until later on in the movie. And I thought that the way they figured this out, um, I think was, um, was quite, quite awesome. Yeah. Everything tied in together, Rob, like I said, I mean, there, there are a ton of moving parts, they seem to tie things in like time wise, the way you look at, you know, I was watching it again this morning and the way you would think, was there enough time for him to do certain things and how everything kind of falls into place. And, and they, they pretty much nailed it and hit it, you know, hit the nail right on the head, so to speak, as far as, you know, how they put it together. Really, really very well done. I mean, you know, the bad guys are getting this set up and, and and McLean's doing this, and and you know, then they they flip to, you know, his wife, uh, you know, 
Holly Gennaro or Holly McLean later at the end of the film when she realizes that she wants to be back with him. And why wouldn't she? I mean, he pretty much saved the day, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. He saved the day. Okay. And, you know, I think when you look at the movie, Hans really doesn't, you know, he's yelling or he's yelling at hostages. He's angry. He's yelling or getting on his, uh, his team underneath him. But at the times when he's with McLean on the radio and then, even when they meet face to face, they were kind of like equals. They kind of, I don't know, they might have had a respect for each other. Um, I thought that was interesting during the movie. And uh, I thought that was quite um, evident, you know, as the movie went on. John had to use his uh, street smarts from being in New York City. And uh, I thought that was uh, done very well as the terrorists supposedly were had a well-planned, executed um, situation going on. And what was the reason why, to let some of our uh, listeners know, what was the reason why they were going to Nakatomi Plaza? They weren't interested in his computer. They were interested in the 600 million bearer bonds that were locked in the vault, and the computer controls the vault. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why they were there. They were there, for, they were there for a gigantic money grab. Man, oh man, that that was uh, that part there. Uh, the, the one part where they get up there before he starts work, Ellis, uh, not Ellis, but uh, Theo starts working on the uh, breaking the code there. When he just like he's mesmerized looking at the safe, and he says, "You were saying." I mean, that just oh yeah, it flowed, it flowed perfectly. I mean, you watch right. that, and it's like I don't know if a lot of actors have that have that discipline to do that, but he, the way he conveyed that. Just like, you know, he was zoned in on that save and then he had to turn over to Theo and goes, you were saying, I thought that was uh, truly, you know, you know what they're getting at um, and they're going to get there right. at some point. But I think just the way, I don't know if any actor have, could have done what Alan Rickman did with Hans Gruber, just like simple parts like that were really. Right. Yeah. Really, just, but just like, just him saying, you know, uh, I'm sorry, you were saying he's like being polite. You know what I mean? Yeah. Almost like he's apologizing for like, you know, interrupting or not paying attention, it would seem. But <clears throat> and what does he say to him? He goes, uh, you know, Theo says, um, you know, the uh <laughs> the seventh the seventh layer or whatever it is, you know, you do realize the circuits cannot be cut locally or whatever. And he's like, Trust me. Like Hans is like, Trust me. So that he even knew, you know, Gruber, you know, Hans knew that Theo would get most of the job done and then when he needed him for the big one that Hans knew how to take care of that. So they definitely had a well thought out plan. They did. And you sent me a picture the other day and it was the picture of all 12 terrorists looking oh, yeah. at the camera. And I yeah. had never seen that picture before. And I, I love that picture. Um, it's truly awesome. And there's one terrorist that I really think it's funny. It's the one that everybody says looks like Huey Lewis. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. The guy at the front desk, Eddie. Yeah. Man, oh man, he was uh, he was good in that part too. Man, he goes, "What can I do for you?" When the <laughs> just the, it just shows they're all they were all trained to be polite and ruthless at the same time. So it's uh, it's amazing how all these terrorists dressed, but whoever cast these terrorists definitely played it did it perfectly. I think everyone was was phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, I mean. Hans was the leader of that group, so we probably insisted that they were all. I mean, I'm sure he probably handpicked everybody to join him on his uh, 
on his little uh his little robber robbery jaunt, you know. So but yeah, every, everyone played. But that guy definitely remind, reminded me of Huey Lewis. I'm like, man, that guy looks like Huey. You know? <laughs> a lot of those guys were, you know, like I said, like Paul Gleason was in The Breakfast Club. and um, There's an Asian actor. He's one of the guys. He uh, doesn't really have a lot of speaking roles. He, he's one of the guys at the front that goes to shoot up the the, the SWAT team when, they, when they're coming up at the beginning to try to make the uh, entrance. You know, and Gruber mm-hmm. was like, just 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 wound them, you know, and the guy that he steals a messy crunch bar <laughs> yeah. from the uh, see that's from the perfect. front desk. That guy was in. That guy was in uh, Lethal Weapon. He was that's one right. of the, uh, the bad guys that worked with Gary Busey and the uh, the uh, the general there. I forget that actor's name, but uh, uh, he was one of the bad guys in that. He was the one that was trying to fry. Um, uh, oh, Mel Gibson. Gibson at the end, yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. I, yeah, yep. I love that part when he uh, when he's he's got the machine gun in his hand and he looks down. And then he looks to, look to see if anybody's looking, and then he goes to grab the candy bar. That's just like one of those little. Well, uh, how funny is that? He's looking to see that he doesn't want to get caught. Meanwhile, he's holding a friggin' submachine gun. He can blow anybody <laughs> away. But he's worried about getting caught for stealing a friggin' at the time probably a you know seventy five cent candy bar. Oh man, that is that is so cool. I, I thought that was a good part, and uh, it's just um, you know the terrorists definitely um, they played it they played it good, and I love the way that um, you know McLean somehow gets to um, go after those terrorists and get those guys um, during the course of the movie. Uh, the other part there where uh, the guy is on top of the uh, that like zigzag uh, conference table conference room table. Yeah. And McLean's all oh, the yeah. way at the end. I love that guy's voice, man. I love it. he's like, Where are you going, pal? No more table. <laughs> Next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. <laughs> that, guy was, that, guy, that guy was fantastic. Of course, and then Bruce Willis blows him away. So, you know, thanks for the advice. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you watch the movie, I think there's one time where there is a breather, and I don't know if you remember this part. But um, it's in the middle of the movie, and he's explaining to Al Powell the the terrorists who are in the building, and he and he he has a long pause, and and it's about eight seconds, and he says cigarettes. That was the only breather in the movie, and uh, I don't know if that was deliberate, but um, that's the only. Uh, time I think it was. I felt, I, it's the only time I felt like there was a little breather there. You just like. Get get a breather before that second half of the movie. Um, you know, looking at it and watching it, you know, all these times, I was wondering why did he pause right. like that? And I know well, I think it's because he wanted to give us a breather before the climatic ending of the movie. But uh, I thought I that was well done as well. No, I, I, in my opinion, I think he 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 was doing that because he thought he heard something. Remember, because he's he's yeah. talking on the radio and he's walking. Remember, he paused and he looked. And he didn't say anything. He was looking in another direction. And that's when he, that's when he said, when he realized it was nothing, he was like cigarettes and he kept going, <laughs> on, you know, so I, I, I think he was, I think he heard something. John McClane heard something and he just wanted to make sure that, you know, I thought he heard like a door or an elevator or something. So I think he wanted to make sure that he was alone, you know, true. true. I, I, you know what? It's a, it's a, it's a thing to think about. I think they do things. And there's another, some other things in the movie that, that you look at like there's points in the movie where like Hans and 
uh, Carl are in the office and you can see like uh, the shit, the, the, the sunset at dusk, you know, when there are like, you can see the blinds going horizontally. I think that still shows that uh, they're like trapped. They're not going to get out of it. You know, when you see things like that in movies, usually because it's, it's like a subliminal message that, you know, they're still, you know, bad guys. So they're not going to break out of what they're doing. Uh, breaking out it's like conflict i thought that there's a few parts in the movie where gruber is in the office and you can see the blinds i think that is you know subliminally says that uh you know that um they're not going to get out of this situation whereas john mcclain is always on the move and he's you know he's doing things um i thought that was uh you know just little things like that with the movie i thought were were done very well uh i'm watching the part right here uh, silently, and he's going to Carl about, you know, after he killed his brother in the elevator, and he's got the blinds in his, you know, you could see it in the in the scene there. So I think that kind of gives a, thinks that they're not going to get out of this situation, so. Right, no, it looks like, and the, the blinds look like, yeah, like you said, they're not getting out of it. It looks kind of like uh, like jail bars or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really weird, like the subliminal message, and uh, that's the part where, uh, Holly says, tell that to Takagi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a fun, it's just, it's just crazy. It's just the way, the way they put the humor like into the movie. And you had, uh, you know, we talk about Dwayne Robinson. What did you think about that part of Dwayne Rob, uh, Dwayne T. Robertson played by Paul Gleason? Did you like that part? Absolutely. I did. I thought it was great. See, I've, I've heard that some people didn't like, uh, some people didn't like it, but, uh, um, I thought it was good. I mean, it was comedic. Some of the stuff was comedic, like the banter between him and, uh, you know, Sergeant Al Powell and, and with McLean later when they're John, John at each other over the radio. But, uh, he, he, I mean, Paul Gleason did a good job also in, in kind of showing that, I mean, as much as we wanted to call him for a lack of a better word, an asshole, um, that, uh, Dwayne T. Robinson, you know, was a cop and knew what he was, it was kind of, maybe doing things by the book a little bit more than uh you know the hunches that uh al powell was going off of sergeant powell but uh yeah i, I liked him in it i liked uh i liked how they went how he went back and forth with mclean and um and uh al powell too i like i, I like his part a lot yeah and you know we, there was one um critic who did not like that part and that was roger Abear Abear from uh cisco and ebert um Back in 1988, he said, as nearly as I can tell, the deputy chief is in the movie for only one purpose, to be constantly wrong at every step of the way and to provide a phony counterpoint to Willis's progress. The character is so will, is so will, willfully useless, so dumb, so much a product of the idiot plot syndrome that all by himself, he successfully undermines the last half of the movie. So Roger Ebert of... Cisco and Eber did not like that. So I thought Cisco that was Eber, pretty interesting yeah. there. So um I thought I thought the, the the Gleason part, the character was okay. I thought he was a good character for the movie because I like the part where he could be a bartender for all we know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He a hunch, things he said, like you know, like maybe being a cop, you know. <laughs> like being able to spot a phony ID. Jesus Christ, Paul, he could be a and bartender for all we know. I love him. Love him, love him, love him. Yeah, so uh so you know it it just goes to show like that, you know, some critics did not like it. Leonard Malton did like the movie. 
He said, director John McTiernan has assembled all the elements to make one hell of an action masterpiece. All the action scenes and explosions are part of the fabric of the story. They enhance it rather than deter from it. The movie is revved up roller coaster ride that gives us goosebumps, laughs, terrors, escapism, rigid and devious villains, and a hero who would make the aforementioned brawny heroes of the 80s seem infinitesimal by comparison. Nobody has come close to making anything as great an action film as Die Hard, and there have been sequels and numerous clones. Forget that even Irwin Allen's Towering Inferno, Irwin Allen only wished he made a movie like Die Hard, and Die Hard was kind of like, um, in a way, like presented like Towering Inferno because it was in a, obviously a tall building. Um, but uh, right. the premise was pretty much the same: tall building, explosions, but not the Inferno part. So, um, I thought that was you know you hear different people uh, have a uh, take on the movie. So I thought for most part, if I had to give it, I mean the movie it's incredible. It keeps you on the edge of your seat even to this day. Um, it's a, it's a great movie. Um, there've been sequels ever since, um, I've seen die hard Two probably about 10 times. And I, and I hate to say, I have not seen three, four, five. I've seen three. I've seen two and three, four, I think is the one. Oh, I forget who the villain is. Uh, I think he's trying to shut down the, uh, uh, like the power grid, the electrical, the computer, all that stuff, the financial institutions in the country. I forget his name, the actor, but uh, I saw a part of that and I didn't see the last one. I don't think, but uh, the uh, third one's pretty good with Samuel, Samuel L. Jackson. That one's pretty good. I, I probably Jared. should watch them. I, I, I love Die Hard so much. I didn't want to, I, I probably will watch them at some point, but I just love Die Hard. It's uh it's pretty, it's, it's pretty awesome. But, um, so basically, uh, we have closed out this first episode here, one of two for Die Hard. And we're going to come back with another episode, uh, with Die Hard, talk about some more characteristics about the movie. And, um, really looking forward to this. Sean, hey, thanks so much. Uh, we're going to be back for another episode. So, uh, hey, thanks. And, um, I look forward to talking to you again. Rob, I had a blast. Anytime you want to talk Die Hard, Van Halen, or anything cool and fun like that, count me in. <laughs>